Welcome to Onstage Offstage, the show for, of, and about theater and the good folks who toil away unceasingly to bring it to you. My name is George Sapio, and we are broadcasting on WRFI 88.1 FM in Ithaca, 91.9 FM Watkins Glen, and 89.9 FM in Odessa. Radio for the people and by the people, broadcasting independent and locally produced programs. And welcome back to another thrilling episode of On Stage, Off Stage. My name is George Sapio. I'm your host. And this week's guest is the remarkable and world-renowned playwright Asia Stratford. Her work's been produced all over the place. Canada, Austria, Italy, Australia, Belgium, England, and all throughout the USA. She's got awards, copious amount of awards to her credit, including the Alan Minieri Award, a Pinter Review Prize for Drama Silver Medal, the Yukon Pacific Playwright Award, the Hudson River Classics New Play Award, and the Last Frontier Theater Conference Audience Choice Award. Her short plays have also won her Best Playwright Awards and places like uh, oh, Looking Glass Theater, Turtle Shell Theater, American Globe Theater, Last Frontier Theater Conference, and a host of others. She's been a finalist for the Actors Theater of Louisville's Heidemann Award and has been nominated for an American Theater Critics Association New Play Award for her full-length play, Somewhere in Between. Her one act, The Unfortunates, about Mary Jane Kelly, the last of Jack the Ripper's victims, recently won the Gloria Allen Peter Award and received development in the Centenary Stage Company Women's Playwrights Series. It also won the 2010 Susan Glassbell Award. The Unfortunates will be making its New York City world premiere at the 2013 New York International Fringe Festival this coming August. She has taught dramatic writing at Cornell and is currently working on her Ph.D. dissertation on contemporary women playwrights. Her work has been published by Smith & Krause, JAC, United Stages, and Meriwether Press. Asia Stratford, welcome to Onstage Offstage. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Let's get started with uh, your upcoming production here, The Unfortunates. One-act play about uh, Mary Jane Kelly, the mm-hmm. last of Jack the Ripper's victims. Can you tell us something about this? I can. I um, Yeah, I'm really excited. This play is going to be in the Fringe this summer. It's just kind of an exciting thing to be doing with it. And I think it's a good play for a Fringe, too. It's just one actor. It's a little kind of quirky because it's um, you know part ghost story, part pub story. Um, I love ghost stories. I do too, and I think we don't see them on stage very often, and it's a shame because they make great theatre. So I'm really excited that we're going to be doing that. Um, and yeah, it's it's sort of a one act. It's 90 minutes, which is um, you know a complete evening in the theatre, but it runs without intermission. It's one of these plays that's sort of um, kind of following a trend at the moment in some ways to 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 not try and break the story up. And I think that's a, that's, a, that's a way playwriting is heading that's kind of interesting. It allows you to tell things like ghost stories. You can't really have an intermission with some kinds of ghost stories because you break the tension. So. Right, right, right. Uh, so, okay, a one-act is as opposed to a two-act. Why isn't it a two-act? Well, largely for that reason because I feel like it, with this story – I don't want people to leave and come back. Mary doesn't get to leave and come back. She's there, and once she's gone, she's gone. And so for me, it's really about kind of like containing the story and containing her and keeping us in that room with her while we can. The tension has to be allowed to run its course. So some plays are built to have an intermission where you can actually take a breather, come back, 
for and be ready for a second half chunk. Right. But this is not one of them. This is one continuous long thought. Right. And, it, and it's the first play I've written that's like this as well. I mean, I haven't written any other one-person plays, and I certainly haven't written something else this long that's designed to not have an intermission. All my other long plays are two acts. Yeah. So uh, why Mary Jane Kelly? What, uh, mm. what I mean, Mary asking Jane. any playwright why they write about anything is always a crazy, nebulous kind of question. Yeah. But and, and so it is with this play, too. But there, there's two answers. The first is that while I was working on another play, um, I was in residence at the Birdcliff Arts Colony, beautiful Birdcliff Arts Colony up in the Catskill Mountains, just out of Woodstock. And I was in there um, for a month, one summer, working on another play and some short stories and um, working away in my cabin in the woods. And I was researching something else and I came across some information on um, the women, the prostitutes who kind of were candidates for Jack the Ripper's canon of victims. So I read a little bit about them and I, I actually read the autopsy report for Catherine Eddowes. And it stuck with me. There was this amazing thing in her autopsy report about all the things that had been found on her person when they found her body. They listed the contents of her pockets, basically. Um, a slither of soap, a pawn ticket for a pair of boots valued at half a crown, um, a pair of tights darned in the left foot with red thread, a teaspoon, um, you know, like all these little tiny, tiny things. And this woman had walked around London wearing everything she owned and carrying everything she owned because she couldn't afford to leave it in the DOS house. It would get nicked. So if you had anything that mattered, you took it with you. And I was so moved by that idea that you could just have everything with you and that we could kind of reassemble her life from this little tiny collection of pathetic things. That story really stuck with me. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do something with that one day because it just wouldn't leave me alone. Is this sort of like a, a version of the things they carried for yeah, prostitutes, exactly. that I wonderful, guess? That wonderful uh, Tim O'Brien story. Exactly, right? So this idea that when our human biological selves are gone, you know, the aliens that come through in 500 years when we've destroyed our planet, we'll find the things we've left. And that's what there is that tells our story, right? So I was kind of intrigued by that, but I put it aside. I was working on other things. And then a few years ago, the Virginia Tech shootings happened. Right. You remember those, right? right? Yeah, sure. And all of a sudden, there was just like nonstop news reporting on what this guy had had for breakfast. There were maps of the school and which Dory had gone in through and, you know, descriptions of backpacks and crazy things like that. And I was like, what is it about violent crime and celebrity that has us fixate on that. And the thing that's interesting about the Jack the Ripper story, one of the things that's interesting about it, is that it was um, one of the first kind of like media frenzies. They published oh. it. He wrote to the newspapers. They published his letters. So it was one of the first cases of, of us as a society, and I'm talking about Victorian London, but really it's good for us too, um, kind well, of I mean, like, everybody knows it in America. It, it's, it's the world over, right? It, it, everybody it, knows who Jack the Ripper is, exactly. although we don't know who he right. was. But he. Um, I mean, if you, if you take any person off the street, <clears throat> any yeah. person off the street, they can name, what, half a dozen serial killers right off the bat? You know, Hillside know. Strangler, Jeffrey Dahmer, David Berkowitz, Ted yep. Bundy. Ted Bundy is yeah. one of the ones that springs to mind from an American, a contemporary American context. And, then, and this is true, and I think that's what, what prompted me to finally sit down and write the play having still in my head this crazy list of things that Kath Eddowes had been carrying and then reading in the paper about this Virginia Tech killing and putting those pieces together and saying there's something wrong with the way we kind of like 
canonise the, the murderers, but we don't remember the names of the victims. Like, everyone knows Ted Bundy. Can you name the women he killed, right? And there were a slew of them. Right. But no one can remember who they were. So I think it's really, it's really interesting. And that started to really bother me and worry away at me. And it's not that the play is a political play in terms of saying, this is wrong with society. It's more a, more a thing for myself, like trying to work out what is it about my reaction to these crimes and why is this fascination? Why do we love these stories and, and get something from them? Why are they myths for our, for our time and yet they're so dreadful and we also only have part of the story. How does that work? What is that about? Yeah. But, but, I mean, but as a playwright who you're looking to get your work produced right. and wouldn't it be easier to market your work saying, oh, I've got a play about Jack the Ripper yeah. than to say, I've got a play about the last of his victims. I mean, yeah. it's just as far as the sensationalism goes, isn't it better material to work yeah. with? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is, I guess. Um, and I guess there's two things for that. One of them, actually, it's funny, like one of the, we had really fantastic reviews for the, the world premiere down at um, Hackettstown on Centenary Stage. And the reviews were all really good. And even the, the worst of the reviews really liked the play, but said, I wish it had Jack the Ripper in it. Like, where's he? Where's the other side of the story? And for me, the the point is is to tell the story with without him. It's like it's not his story. It's not his turn. It's not his turn in the spotlight. It's about this these women who lived these hard, hard lives and lost their lives. And it's a chance to kind of like put those back a little bit. Yeah. And we don't know who he was. I mean, there's some really great theories out there. I kind of subscribe to. Um, Patricia Cornwell's theory about the painter, but we don't know. Yeah, nobody, nobody's been able to figure it out. It's, no. it's one of the great ones. The reviews for this play are outstanding. It, 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 it's, I looked them up. It's, quote, well-researched, well-written, captivating, and spellbinding. That's one. Yeah. Another one is jaw-dropping play, an hour and a half of theater that is not to be missed. And another one says a force to force. And I know from <laughs> seeing this way, way back, you know, when it was still in workshop, right. I guess, when you did it in Ithaca at the kitchen. It. Yeah. yeah. And and the remarkable Meg Elliott played this. She was absolutely outstanding. It's Yeah, it's well, it's an historical play. So naturally, as, you know, as someone who is a historian who has written a historical play, and it's, to me, the research is... Mm-hmm. I mean, how long did it take you to, to, to do this? Years, you know, years and years. And the thing about research, and this is the thing about historical... And I actually have... This is not my only historical play. I have a, a, a play about the wives of Henry VIII that took me two years to research mm-hmm. and then another two years to write before it was even ready to go out there. Um... And that play is the same as this play in that you have to know, like you have to live it and breathe it and know. Like I can, I can probably walk blindfolded pretty much from Mitre Square to, to you know, the Ten Bells public house because I've spent enough time really thinking about what those corners of London look like. None of that actually makes it into the play in some way, but somehow on a kind of subliminal level, I think the research informs your writing and that's what makes the voice true. Like I couldn't tell her story unless, because the play is fictitious. It's well-researched, it's based on fact and everything that's in there is an extrapolation of something that we know. It's piecing together things that we know, but I mean, I'm, I'm making things up. I'm a storyteller, that's my job. I think the joy of historical plays is that you take something and say... This is what we know. Now, what if? You know, and it's the what if that's the real thing. But you have to know, you have to know the foundation before you can speculate as to what the what if is. And if you don't, if your foundation's not solid, you're shot. You're listening to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and our guest this week is playwright Asia Stratford, who's been telling us all about her uh, new play, The Unfortunates 
a one act which goes up the New York Fringe in August based on the life of uh, Jack the Ripper's last victim, Mary Jane Kelly. And for those of you who are hearing piano tones in the background, no, these are not cheesy dramatic effect by the producers of On Stage, Off Stage. Uh, Asia was having her piano tuned. Okay, so the unfortunate is going to New York City mm. to, to the Fringe in mm-hmm. August. Um, yeah. What's that going to be like? Um, I'm hoping it's going to be fabulous. <laughs> and we're going to get amazing reviews. Um, the woman who's playing Mary Jane, Diana Cherkas, is, is the actress who um, also played her at Centenary Stage, and she's great. You know, I've been really lucky with this play. I've had three fabulous actors playing it in its various outings here. Um, because I had Meg Elliott, as you said, when we first did the right. kitchen workshop, and then I had Erica Steinhagen read for, um, do it for the Opera House last oh. year as well. So I've been. It really helps when you have it a good actor and when it's a one person play you kind of have to have a good actor otherwise you're in trouble so I've been lucky and really kind of you know had a chance to work with great people um it's going to be exciting and then I'm hoping that because it's a one person show and it's 90 minutes and one set one costume we might be able to take it to somewhere like Edinburgh and do something up there which would be really you know a fun thing to do but, you know, I have kids, so planning international travel is <laughs> something I can't really afford to do too much of. So we'll, well see. Taking a show anywhere is uh, even a one-person show with a very simple yeah. set. It's The no, logistics it's are daunting, to say the least. They are. But, you know, I mean, this is one of the things about theatre now for playwrights is that you've got to be willing to do that. And I think often the shows that are doing well out there are the ones that can be packed up and put in a suitcase and put in the back of the minivan and driven to wherever because, you know, the big theatres are doing fewer new plays by playwrights in, in some ways and there are more and more playwrights writing plays every year and so in some ways it, it behooves us to become our own best advocates and our own producers and if you find a place to do a show I mean this is the beauty of fringe festivals and and you I mean I didn't this wasn't me this is Diana who said I want to do this play again I want to take it to the fringe this is where this needs to go and she's the engine I'm just along for the ride but I mean I think if you get that going with an actor or a director and you develop that relationship and there's a fringe festival or something then you've got to be willing to stick it in the truck and move it. Has this changed your writing style now I mean are you writing Different plays because of solely for portability, for for ease of production. Well, no, and I, you know, in some ways, I feel like I should be right. Um, Typically, I tend to write large cast plays. It's just that those have been the stories that I've been interested in, and you know, every play has its own rules. And I think if you sit down to write a three-hander with one set. Um, you're already confining yourself in a way that can sometimes limit the questions that you can productively ask. When I sat down to write this play, Unfortunates, I had three or four characters. I was like, I had a cast of four people. Kath Eddowes was on stage. There was a policeman in it. It was going to be two acts. And then the more I wrote, the more I realized, no, you know what? It's just her. This is just, this is all that's left is this one voice take everything else out, isolate her, trap her, pin her down. So this play needed to be this way. Um, will I ever write another one-person play? I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to be mindful of the constraints of the industry at the moment, and I'm trying to write things that have either very, very fluid sets or just one set um, and and have easier production constraints in terms of the cast size anything above five actors is just a hard sell these days that's just the the rule of it and even five is pushing it three is a lot better 
Three is a nice number. It's well balanced. It's kind of a, a good way to go. Well, when, when you but think of the yeah, think of the financial constraints for most of the theaters across America, they are right. not well funded. Right. They do not have the resources they would like to have. Right. If they're going to do a show, they have to do something that is not going to break their bank, that is not going to send them around looking for actors they can't immediately find and possibly having to settle for actors to fit the cast that they don't want to work with. Right. And then they've got to pay those actors, you know, and if you're paying actors, that can add up really quickly if you're going to have a... You know, a three-week rehearsal period, and those people are being paid. It's yeah, the bills are the bills are big. Theatre is an expensive enterprise. None of us are doing this for the money, right? So, um, we're not. <laughs> well, if you are, you're probably making a mistake. Um, but I mean, I sort of feel like with the three-person plays that I, I know I want to write one, and I, I'm pretty sure that when I do, that's going to be easier to sell than some of the other things. The story that is that play hasn't yet come to me. I, I get the idea that you start writing about something and you let the play dictate what it's going to be as it develops. You don't have the entire thing plotted out from start to finish. No, and that's an interesting difference between um, the kinds of things that you know you write too. Like if I'm writing an essay, I know where I'm headed. If I'm writing a short story. I often know nothing other than the opening line. If I'm writing a play, I have questions that I know I want to answer and a sort of sense of the territory. If I'm writing film stuff, then that's plotted out much more thoroughly and you know where you're headed. You know, like a screenplay has different um, kind of rules for the for the writing process. But plays are, are quirky, time-consuming, awkward, ugly beasts, you know. They, they're going to become in the night what they want to be and you don't have... I mean, you control it, you are the god of your plan. It's not like I'm channeling Mary Jane Kelly, but you know there are things that happen as you write, and you've got to be open to that. I have to be. That's my process. Is that I need to be open to that. And sometimes the play changes direction, and sometimes that's good, sometimes it's not good. But you have to at least honour that that's what's on the table. Sounds like raising kids. You do everything you can for them. You push yeah, them in right. the directions you want them to go in, and all of a sudden, yeah, yeah where well, did this little crazy being come from? I have three kids, and I'm not actually sure that raising kids isn't easier than writing plays, but it's, it's yeah, no, it is. I mean, it's and that's the same thing. I guess another thing about it is that you learn, you learn from your play, and every play is different the same way that you learn from your kids, and every kid is different. I mean, the rules that I kind of use for handling my seven-year-old are completely different to the rules I use for my four-year-old. So. so if you could change one thing about mm. theater uh, these days, the business, the craft, anything, uh, what would that be? That's a really tough question. My instinct is to say I'd like to be able to put food on my table from doing it. I'd like to be able to, I'd like it to pay a little better. But on the other hand, I think that that brings people to it for the money and not for the love of it. And I think theater is a, a labor of love. So I'm not even sure I would change that. Um, I definitely would change the the parity, the gender parity in theatre. I think yeah. there are a lot of women out there writing great stories and there's still, in in the infrastructure that kind of runs theatre nationally and internationally, there is a there is a gender bias. It's hard to it's hard to argue against that, I think. Just take stock of, of yeah. who's on the author list and the number of women out there is microscopically embarrassing. Compared to men. And it's not that, you know, and it's not, I don't believe it's that women aren't writing good plays or interesting plays. No, women are writing some absolutely amazing plays. Right. Uh, they're just not getting the, the due because... 
Well, I think one of the reasons is also is that women tend to be less pushy. Um, and also, you know, women as, as caregivers, I mean, very often women are also the ones who are raising kids. And kids in theatre in some ways are a little incompatible. But, you know, like Teresa Reback, who's got kids and has got to kind of manage being a mum and being her advocate for her own work. And she's, you know, made it to the top of the... The food chain in that respect, but she's she's yeah, she's, she's published voice. copiously. She's got I'm a, I can't even count how many plays she's got. Right, but she's a remarkable voice, not a typical voice. Um, right. I love her work. I think she's great, and she's she's done a lot to put you know playwrights who are women and mothers kind of in a position of visibility, which is great. Um, we just need more of that. I agree. You're talking about the unfortunates. Your protagonist is Mary Jane Kelly, a woman. Mm. You're talking about uh, um, Six Wives of Henry VIII, the play mm. you wrote. Do you write specifically about women? Is that something that's on your agenda, or is that just the way it turns out? It's the way it turns out. Um, it's the way it turns out. And I do believe that, you know, people say, I also write fiction, or I used to before I realized that I just most of my stories are plays. Um, people say you should write what you know. And so, to some extent, you write the gender that you know, but that doesn't work for playwriting because you need to populate your play with everybody. I mean, in a short story, you can be in the head of one person, right? So I could be in the head of a female character. But, I mean, the unfortunate is unusual because it's one person. Most of my plays have got men and women of all different ages and stripes and nationalities, and it's just the way it's turned out. The new play that I'm working on now, the, the, the central characters are both men. So You are a well-known established playwright you've been in the business for years you've been produced all over the world yeah and anyone in this business god knows why you'd want to be a playwright in the first place <laughs> yeah, instead right. of something useful yeah because you mean, can't wash because can you, you can't wash dishes and you can't cook that's why well yeah, okay in my case that's that's for sure <laughs> but we know how tough it is to get recognized right? or, or to get somebody else to believe in your work enough to put time money mm. real estate effort tears creativity into producing you there are a few books out there and there are some websites that feature oh contest listings Mm -hmm. submission notices all these available places for you to you know go flog your work Mm -hmm. um but in proportion to the number of playwrights out there there are some pretty thin pickings Mm -hmm. i mean all right so let's say we have in any one year we have x number of available opportunities for you know contests submissions theaters residencies colonies that sort of thing and the number of playwrights out there probably what a hundred times that maybe yeah it's staggering i mean i know last last time i was reading play submissions for something it was like you know there was 300 plays for for a dozen slots in a festival and some festivals get many more than that like i think the you know the readings for the Humana Festival, the the ten minute play thing, which has now changed. But like a few years ago, under the structure that that was when I was submitting, it was like well over a thousand submissions, and they produced twenty. So yeah, I mean the odds are not great. No, the, the odds are terrible. But as playwrights, I mean there are plenty of schools for us to go to, mm-hmm. to learn how to develop character, to learn right. how to keep the unity of a play, right. to learn the difference between a three act, five act, one act, mm-hmm. two act. Um, and you know, to help us with our craft, I'm putting quotes around, you know, around right, that. Right. But there are very few places for us where somebody will say, "You want to be a professional playwright? Mm-hmm. This is what you need to do." You mm-hmm. know, you turn off the left brain, if that's the creative side, right? right? Yeah. And you turn on your right brain, right? right? Um, or maybe it's the other way around. I can never remember because, you know. <laughs> it, it, 
whatever. But you've got one brain. It's, I've, it's functioning I've, in unity. <laughs> I'm right? hoping it functions at all. Yeah, really. But where do we learn how to represent ourselves? Where do we go? Who do we talk to? Right. Or how do we become that business person that we need to be in mm. order to let the creative side flower? It's a hard question, and I think there's, I mean, there's two answers. Is One is by trial and error. You just keep doing things and they don't work, or then you start doing things and they do. Um, and, you know, and it's different for different people too. I mean, some people literally just sit in their basement and type out their plays, put them in envelopes, send them out, and never go to the theatre, never go out and shake hands or meet people or attend functions or take a class. And other people go to absolutely everything. And I don't think either of those is necessarily... Um, the silver bullet. Oh, wait, silver bullets kill werewolves, don't they? The golden bullet. Yeah, the, the, the wooden stake isn't good either. <laughs> right, you know what I mean, though. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it, it varies greatly depending on the writer. It varies greatly depending on where they are, too. Like in a town like Ithaca, where we are, this is a smaller community, and, you know, you, you're you going to work with people in town. You, you need to know who those people are. So you, you go to things, and you meet people, and you talk, and you have coffee, and... Um, and that's, but that's, what if you're sending something to Seattle? What if you're in Ithaca right. and you're sending something halfway across the country to people you don't know? And yeah. all you've basically got is your cover letter and your script. Right. Well, I mean, I think there's two. There's, my words of advice for people doing that are um, I have three things. Firstly is make your play the best play that it can be for the moment that you're sending it out. And that doesn't mean your play has to be perfect and polished. It means if you're sending it because it's a reading opportunity, it's ready for a reading. If you're sending it for uh, to win a competition, you think it's got a shot for that competition, right? So have the play be appropriate and ready for the thing you're sending it to. Secondly is be really honest. I mean, I think it's important to for us to promote ourselves, but I think we also have to be be honest about our cover letters and say, you know, I've... I've followed the guidelines. I think my play is a match for you, and this is why. Not because this is the best thing you'll ever read, but because I've, I've, I've looked at what you've done, and I think this play is going to be good for you. Right? So honesty and preparedness. And then, honestly, it's luck and perseverance. Mm. And you've got to just keep sending things out. At some Those point, are the words we don't want to hear. No, but it's true. you know. And I think this is true of all writing and actually probably all art, is that it's there's three components. One is talent, one is luck, and one is just sheer dogged persistence you've got to keep at it you've got to keep at it and if you don't then your work's not going to get done so you need a thick skin and a long objective road to follow and yeah and a willingness for a willingness for the journey to suffice too i mean that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be ambitious or that you shouldn't want what's at the end but i sort of feel like with the unfortunates, like, wow, how awesome would it be if that play ended up on Broadway and won a Pulitzer Prize? That would rock my world, right? And my kids would, you know, think that was pretty awesome when they were old enough to understand what that was. Great, fantastic. But I've been really lucky. I've had some great actors work on this play. I've had people in the audience cry because of this play and laugh because of the play. And it's a journey, you know? And at some point, you've got to be willing to say... If I get hit by a bus tomorrow, the journey will suffice. What I have done has been worth it. I've made some small contribution to the world, and, and this is what it is, you know. Yeah, as far as being professional, I mean, what kind of, what, what are there organizations out there that can help these playwrights, that can help any playwright? I mean, what, what kind of resources are out there? Well, I think you're right to say that, you know, there's lots of websites and there's 
courses that people can take to learn how to work on craft and where to send things. Um, one organisation that I have found helpful is the Dramatists Guild of America, and I'm actually the regional representative for this area for that organisation, and they have a big conference coming up at the end of August. And that's actually... An they do some amazing work. They do, and I think um, they're advocates for playwrights. That's what I like about that organisation is that they're really about the playwright, and they're not about the play you're writing. They don't care what you're writing. They're really about you being treated fairly as a playwright. So they have a legal department who will help you put together contracts and they have um, lawyers who can give you advice on things and they have like the conference in August is um, has workshops on how to write things sure but also on how to balance writing and teaching or how to find your way through contracts 101 or you know whatever it is so it's it's much more um, geared to helping you think about being um, a playwright in the world. Edward Albee said one thing which I'll share, which I, I think is true, and I kind of like live by this. He says that you don't have to be, you don't have to write every day to be a writer because a lot of people say that. You're a playwright, you're a professional playwright if you write every day. I don't believe that and who has time to really? But um, you are a writer if you think and breathe and live in the world like a writer every day. Right, which means you're not saying, oh, I'll do my writing tomorrow, but you're, you're being a writer in the world. So I think it's part of being a professional is about just that attitude, that this is my work, this is my love, I take it seriously, I respect the others who do the same. Yeah, people always ask me, are you writing something? I said, I'm writing something right now. I said, really? I yeah. said, I'm thinking about it. It's, it's exactly. in, You should see what's going on in my head. I know. Wow. There's a thousand monkeys back there with typewriters working on Hamlet. And frequently, that's what my drafts look like. <laughs> you know, like a thousand monkeys. Yeah, <laughs> mine too. But you know, you've got to have a draft before you've got something to revise, right? I mean, you've got to... And sometimes the drafts, the first drafts are mental drafts. It's true. It's just everyone's yeah. process is different and you've got to respect that. Coming out of left field. When is a play done? Yeah, well, you know... Uh, I mean, you're talking about The yeah. Unfortunates, and I saw it way back. Yeah. And yeah, that been, it's... That play's been in motion for five or six years now. Um, the play I'm writing at the moment has also been in motion for probably three um, and will be for another few more. It, it's done when... Chekhov says a play is done or a short story is done when you go through and you take out a comma and then you go through again and you put that comma back in again. So when you when you don't when you're still trying to change things, but the changes are not as good as what was there to begin with, um, that's true. And also when the next project is more pressing, when there's something else that's keeping you up at night. The unfortunate's kept me awake for five years. You know, it's not keeping me awake at night anymore. I'm now worrying about other questions and other things. Not that those questions have left me, or that I feel like I've answered them satisfactorily, because I think good theatre asks more questions than it answers. But that I have other things that I'm now thinking about. And those things are kind of op- occupying the frontal lobe, you know. So. so our frontal lobe is occupied with other things. There's, yeah. there's something in the rear lobe that, and I'm asking this for all the that playwrights out there, that never goes away. There's some little voice that's saying, I could do more on this. I think I could do more on this. Yeah, I think I could, you know, I could put in those three words that make right. this... Suddenly work. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. And, and different playwrights and also fictional writers have done that. I mean, there are published versions of short stories that have been slaved over and then five years later comes out a revision you know uh, Raymond Carver did that with a couple of his stories it's not it's not unheard of that people go back and with theatre of course every time there's a production there's a chance to change it to change the record well that's um, the advantage we have as playwrights it's totally we can advantage. do that yeah novelists it's also are... the disadvantage for us right because there's a there's a tendency in this country particularly at the moment to develop 
to just develop and develop and develop mm. something to death. Yeah. And so playwrights are actually told, we are told constantly, your play is not ready, your play is not ready, your play is not ready. We don't want to give it a production, but we'll give it a reading. It's not ready for us to invest all this money, but, you know, we'll sell some tickets and do a workshop. So the message that we're hearing from the theatre industry, I think, is overwhelmingly, your play is not ready yet. Mm-hmm. We can help you fix it. Um, and I think that that message is... Um, so one that's got to be taken very cautiously for us as writers. We have to be willing to say, my play is done when I say it's done and when I feel it's done and not when somebody else says it. So that's a that's another part of the puzzle, I think. And that's partly to do with just the economics of the theatre industry and the way that it's not actually skewed towards giving productions to new plays by new writers. Yeah. Well, the more experienced playwright will know, will have this feeling that you have, this this knowledge that there are things on the front burner. I can safely put this on the back burner because now mm-hmm. I I know through experience, I know through writing, I know from living with this play for five years right, that, right. you know, it, it can go there and I don't have to worry about it. Right. But in experienced playwrights who are told by, again, with the quotes, seasoned professionals, right. you know, who say, your play isn't done, you need to do this, right. can be extremely damaging. Yeah. It can be. And I think, you know, this is part of what the journey is and part of what the job is, is to learn to kind of like... uh, Susan Laurie Parks does this amazing thing with her hands, which clearly I can't do on radio and clearly I can't do because I'm not Susan Laurie Parks, even though I wish I was, (laughs) um, because she is completely awesome. But she, she says that, you know, when you hear somebody say something about your play, when you get a note about your play, something's kind of like flow into you and you go, yeah, I kind of feel that, like that makes sense to me on a visceral level and other things kind of like jang you know what I mean like they, they're kind of like it doesn't sound right doesn't ring right bangs up against a hard mm-hmm. surface yeah. and I think that that's that's instinct right and it, we all right. have it seasoned and not seasoned alike well, and learning to trust it is the is that's the thing and yeah. we're all vulnerable too like it doesn't matter I think how many plays you've had you know you're at the mercy of people saying your plays not, it takes it takes a really you know, a strong disposition to say, you know what, no, I disagree with you. My play is ready. And sometimes mm-hmm. the playwright will be right and sometimes they won't. And, you know, I'm saying that the unfortunates is done. I don't think the play is necessarily absolutely perfect. I might take out a comma and actually leave that comma out. But whatever That's I so do to it now, yeah. I know, exactly. <laughs> I'm not Chekhov. I'm not Susan Laurie Parks. What am I? Um, but, I mean, the interesting thing is I think that, you know, it would be a different play. It wouldn't necessarily be... A better play and I think that's the thing right is that at some point what you're talking about is the play is done when changing it would make it different and not better okay. last question Go you ahead. are pursuing a PhD I am. a PhD in in what quantum mechanics <laughs> perfect for a playwright oh, no. yes oh, God, yeah. I wish I wish I could change uh, the laws of the universe to make us pay better but it's in theater it's a drama why for God's sakes why I mean it, it, how many years does is this going to take and you're raising three kids yeah right and why would any sane person uh, embark upon this particular journey? Right, because I can't wash dishes and I can't cook. <laughs> Same well, as everybody else, right? That's our interview. Thanks I very could, much. I yeah. could make a living if I could. If I could, if it was a better cook, I could work in a restaurant downtown. Um, two reasons. One is because actually I really love scholarship and I love other people's plays and I love talking about other people's plays. I love reading plays and seeing plays and 
thinking about how they're put together and how they work and what people are doing. And that, that to me is fascinating and I get infinite pleasure from it. So doing a PhD allows me to do that. It allows me to kind of really like look at plays by say somebody like Susan Laurie Parks who I've just mentioned or Carol Churchill or Teresa Rebeck or whoever it is and say, wow, look at what's going on here. How can we really think about what this is doing socially and aesthetically and politically and generically? And so I kind of like thinking about plays that way. Mm-hmm. It's a chance for me to do that. And I think I think I have some um, something to contribute to. I think I have some things that I've thought about plays that may be useful contributions to the scholarship that's out there on women writing plays today. And I think it's worth talking about. I mean, I think... You know, women are in the trenches writing plays. There should be scholars and critics out there writing intelligently about them and having a conversation and and discussing them with the seriousness and the respect and the the detail that they deserve. So I want to be part of that movement. Um, And the other reason is is because I love to teach. I love teaching students. I love teaching playwriting. Um, Some days I love it more than actually the writing itself. Like, I really do love it. And it's hard. I can totally understand that. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a complete joy. It's it's hard hard work and it's exhausting, but it's a joy. Well, it's and talking it's, about the thing you love doing most, right? And watching other people discover that for themselves and being part of their journey, but also just watching their journey from afar, and it, mm-hmm. it's a magical thing. But anyway, so I think um, for me, part of the thing is that it's difficult unless you have like a, a an A string career. It's hard to land a job. Um, teaching just playwriting, you've got to be in a place that's big enough to support the different platforms or, or, you know, you've got to be a screenwriter as well as a playwright. Um, Like our new hire at Cornell, who's fantastic, Austin Bunn, he he writes plays, he also writes screenplays, so he's kind of able to teach across the different forms, whereas I'm not so much. I've written a couple of screenplays, but it's not really my form. I write fiction and, and plays, and so... I've got to find a way to supplement what I can do and to make me marketable to a university. It helps if I can go in and teach intro to dramatic history. And I do think that having an understanding of how theatre operates historically and politically and culturally um, actually makes people better theatre practitioners. I think scholarship and practice begin together and belong together. I really do. And that's that's a contentious debate now, but people are now starting to think that way more than they have done, mm-hmm. that scholarship and practice do actually support each other and belong together, and particularly in pedagogy and teaching. I, I can't see why they wouldn't, because it's, it's various either, aspects of the same thing, right. and to have more tools in your arsenal as a playwright, as a professional theatre person... Right. How could that possibly hurt? Well, I think the argument is is that, you know, those who can do, do, and those who can't do, teach. Um, yeah, I've heard that. I read it in a Snoopy cartoon once. Yeah, right. And whatever Snoopy says is right. Um, but then there's also the sort of thinking that if you're, if you're a specialist, that, you, you know, you can't be really good at something mm-hmm. unless you're only doing that one thing. Whereas I sort of feel like as a writer... I'm a better writer when I'm walking the dog because I'm thinking about things and watching the world around me. So for writers, I think that's actually not true. I think maybe that's true for, you know, scholars in some fields. But if you're a theatre scholar, you've got to go and see theatre. So I don't see how they can be separated. But they have been um, in some camps separated historically. And I think there's a movement now to put them back together. That's exciting to me, and I want to be part of that movement. Excellent. Yeah. Aisha, it's been an absolute thrill talking with you today. Oh, my and treat. My uh, treat. yeah, I loved it. Uh, do you have a website? 
Not at the moment. Um, it will be coming. Will back. you have a website? <laughs> I did have one. But I will um, share the website for the unfortunates, uh, for those who think they might make it down to the city to see it. It's www.vertical-tasting.com, and I encourage people to go and check it out. Uh, as somebody who's seen the play in at least one incarnation, I totally... Uh, encourage you to go check this out. This is a brilliant piece of work, and you're going to love it. It's going to be the at the Newark, New York International Fringe Festival. Dates aren't set yet? No, dates aren't set yet, but that'll be up on the web soon, and if you're in for the show, we'll go out for a beer afterwards. Love to. Yeah, that'd be great. See you then. Okay, thanks. Thanks.